Gentlemen, we are dealing with the undead. Mas, Feralto. Yes, Nosferatu. The undead. The vampire. According to the legends of my people, the last Khan Dracula became one of the undead. A vampire. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Welcome to the now playing Universal Films Dracula Movie Retrospective Series. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Hosted by Jacob. Oh, and I have waited an eternity for a man of your strength, your gifts, your will. Arnie. I am considered somewhat of an authority on the subject. And Stuart. We've all become God's madmen. All of us. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Run to your mother. We hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's eat. Today we're discussing Dracula, starring Bella Lugosi. David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry, Edward Van Sloan, directed by Todd Browning. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing and Child of the Night. And Stuart. And this is the host who's like a wild animal, like a madman, Jacob. And this is it, right guys? Like, we're a horror podcast. Many times we cover big horror series. Count Dracula, biggest monster of all time. I feel like... This is foundational. If you know one monster movie character, you know Count Dracula, the guy with the fangs and the cape. I think Freddy Krueger's bigger and Jason these days. Stop! No! You're showing your age. Your grandma knows Dracula. She doesn't know Freddy Krueger. Yeah, but Gen Z knows Freddy Krueger and, well, they know Dracula. I don't know if they do. They haven't got any new Freddy movies. Everybody. This is my point. Yes. I'm not saying he's the biggest with you. I'm just saying the most well-known. Foundational. It's the template, right? This is a movie monster. And so we're here. We kind of covered him unofficially for the last two weeks. And now we can safely say that this is the version based on Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, which I have read. I finally finished it, so I can speak to it. I found it interesting, though. It's not based on the novel. It's based on the play based on the novel. There's a play? Well, yeah, we'll get there. But yes, it was a novel. And Arnie, you've already had your thoughts about it. It sucked. Jacob, (laughs) you've already made your disdain known. I gave you my thoughts about a third of it. (laughs) Yes. I don't know. I kind of got into it. I'll be honest. It is a little bit of work at first. I agree with you guys. The first 80, 100 pages is a little bit hard just because you're having to create it. Because we're having to find it within letters and diary pages and what have you, it requires more work. That didn't bother me, though. I liked the Jonathan Harker stuff best in that novel. The opening stuff where Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania is my favorite part, and that's all letters and things. What got me was the letters between Mina and Lucy. Yep, that's what I tapped out. But that's important. If you're, I think what I hear you saying is, I'm bumping up against the idea I came for horror, 
and I'm getting romance, Dracula is a monster of the romantic era. He is sexual. That is part of why he's still with us. The reason why we care about this monster more than any other is because he preys upon our feelings about sex and love and lust and chastity. So you had to have characters who had different ideas about romance. You have Mina, who's already married, and then her friend who is trying to decide, who's kind of a, you know, dare we slut shamer for having three (laughs) proposals. I definitely feel like that was a part of it. The morality of, let's just face it, Dracula's the Mac Daddy. He can come in, no matter how much you've sworn to God that you're going to love another man, he can take you away from that man. He can make you his own. And that's his power. I kind of dug it. I agree, it's not my favorite horror novel, and I don't know if it's scary, but I could see its appeal. I can see why it's still with us. And I think it was always destined for the stage because Bram Stoker was a manager of a theater, the Lyceum Theater. That's kind of how he got inspired by Dracula, among many things, was that he was mounting productions of Macbeth and Faust, and he had this diva actor named Henry Irving who sounds a lot like the role model for a Count Dracula of someone you love to hate. And he always wanted Irving to play it. When he finished the novel, he wanted to bring it to the stage. But Irving, in true contrary fashion, this actor, like you write him a role and say, this is perfect for you. And he goes, "Ah, trash. And he didn't do it. And what's funny is, I would say most people don't know who Henry Irving is now, but again, we all know Dracula. He probably should have played the role. But yes, it was a popular novel for many decades, and Stoker died before it was ever mounted as a stage play or as a movie. He never even saw Nosferatu, which of course was the unofficial version that got shut down. But yes, what we're here to talk about is, I think, the 1931 Bela Lugosi. This is the one that people consider the first Dracula, even though there were some bootlegs out there. Yeah, this is the one, and it was interesting watching this, but anytime somebody is doing a vampire, a stereotypical vampire, down to the Count on Sesame Street, this is who's being aped. It should be said, this is our first entry into Universal Monsters, not that we're doing them all here, but, you know... Films I haven't seen, except for Frankenstein, because my dad showed me young Frankenstein. And I'm like, I don't know what's funny about this. <laughs> so he showed me Frankenstein, and I don't know. I should go back to young Frankenstein to see if it improved. We'll get to Frankenstein. We're kind of going to cover all the Universal Monsters at some point. Eventually, yes. But you're right, Arnie. Like, this is the Dracula template. Like, I knew Bella Lugosi because Bella Lugosi is dead, according to Bauhaus. Like, one of my favorite songs. Like, I've seen the imagery of Bela Lugosi and know that he is so influential, but I just never had any desire to go back and see this thing. I did see this back again when I read the novel and we were covering Salem's Lot those many years ago. I'm like, I read the novel, but I knew this was iconic and I decided I wanted to watch the original Dracula, never had seen it before. So this is my second time seeing it. I've seen it in the past as well. And my memory was, It wasn't very good. It didn't stay with me. Certainly wasn't scary. But what's funny is that, yes, we all call this iconic. This is the reference point by which all future Draculas measure themselves. But Bela Lugosi was not the original choice. Todd Browning was set up to make this movie based on the novel, 
with Universal using Lon Chaney, who maybe people don't know now, but he was known as the man of a thousand faces. He was kind of the pioneer of makeup and special effects prosthetics. He had famously transformed himself to play an early version of Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame, and just so many different physically altered performances. Todd Browning had directed him in many of his most famous of the 20s. They were silent movie guys, and so this was going to be their first talkie together. Two things happened that changed Dracula. Lon Chaney dies, and Todd Browning suddenly doesn't want to make the movie anymore, and the stock market crashes. The Great Depression happens, and the plans to do an epic Dracula based on the novel change, and they go, well, how do we pare this down? What did they do on the stage? And so they went and saw how it had been adapted to Broadway in the 20s, and Bella Lugosi is the actor that was playing Dracula on The Great White Way. He was the Broadway Dracula. He wasn't their original choice, and they looked at using other movie stars, but in the end, if you have a guy that's packing the houses, playing this character, they figured it was a safe bet. I don't know if you remember, Stuart, but we actually saw this stage play many years ago. We didn't go together, but we were there together and ran into each other in the lobby in Springfield. Oh yeah, Martin Landau was Dracula. I cherish that memory. I thought it was great. You know what? People loved it on the stage because it's all about the special effects. In the same way that I think people now like Phantom or Cats or any of that stuff because they, (laughs) God bless them, they have fine teacups with cats in them and all of that. I mean, this is why Spider-Man was a huge hit on Broadway, right? (laughs) Right! (laughs) It can go very wrong when you don't get the technical right. But yes, it's a lot of fun to see a bat on a string fly in and then a puff of smoke and then an actor appears out of the floor and you have that supernatural kind of thing happening before your eyes. Live theater can be fun in that way. I remember never knowing how the hell they staked him at the end. Just, it looked like a real person. It looked like a stake went in. It freaked me out as a kid. Wow, so it sounds like you get to see a lot more stuff than you do in this film. (laughs) Well, yeah, this is the thing. So we are now in the 30s. Universal is bankrupt. They think they might have to fold. They don't have the actor that knows the technical prowess. And... One other important thing that's happened is the Hayes Coast are passing. Movies were pretty raunchy and racy in the 20s. There is a lot of nudity. There's a lot of films that had very suggestive things going on in it. And they started cracking down. And if you're making a Dracula, all the good parts, all the things people want to see now are going to be questioned by those codes. Yeah, that was one of my questions, because I was excited when I found out that Todd Browning was the director of this, because Freaks, which I think came out the next year, one of my favorite, you could call it a horror film or whatever, it's just a weird film, probably not the most politically correct one these days, but I really enjoyed that one. I know that one was severely compromised because of the codes and all that. They cut a lot of stuff out of there, but was he known for doing horror type stuff? Was this his genre? Kind of, yeah, Unholy 3. Again, Lon Chaney and the makeup. I mean, do you consider Hunchback a horror movie? He had worked with Lon Chaney, and they, again, silent era. He was a very good director, visually. He did not like the restraints that came with microphones and sound, and having lost his leading man. The word is, Todd Browning's name is on this, but you could call it Alan Smithy. You could say 
that he kind of checked out during this production. Some of the actors say, I never saw him. He didn't direct my scenes. He was depressed that he couldn't make the movie that he wanted to. And it was the cameraman, Carl Freund, who also, by the way, shot Metropolis, a German cinematographer and became a director of his own shortly thereafter. He kind of had to pick up the slack. So this is not considered one of Todd Browning's most artistically successful movies. But financially, this thing was huge. This thing saved Universal. It got them thinking we need to make all these Universal monsters because our box office really needs it. And they survived the Great Depression on the backs of Bela Lugosi and classic movie monsters like Dracula. Now, which version did you see? This movie, the way that Todd Browning conceived of it, and I have to believe part of that is, again, he loves silent films, was he said, I only want this to have 25% talking, and I want the rest of it to be a really quiet movie. I don't want to score. I don't want any kind of disruption. When you hear a wolf howl in the background, I want you to like stand at attention because you haven't heard anything in a while. So the original cut of this movie is, I would say, it's not a silent movie. You can hear... No, there's lots of static from the deteriorated soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Bella's heavy accent, but I do feel like there's not a lot of music. There's none, Stuart, except for the opening. Yeah, they go to the symphony at one point. There is occasionally some music. Browning says that that was an artistic choice. Maybe. Mm, Bad choice, Browning. But there has been a version that was released, and I watched both. Philip Glass was commissioned to write a score much later, and with Kronos Quartet, they put out a version. How's the score? That sounds amazing. Yeah, I love Kronos Quartet. Well, you know, here's the thing about Philip Glass. His music is kind of droning. It's kind of hypnotic. All of it is like two notes. Do, 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 do. So, you know, when you have a character that kind of has his way by hypnotizing women, and he got this score, sometimes it really works. It feels like you're falling under a spell. So I would say sometimes it's good, and then sometimes I do actually like the quietness of this movie. Either version is more or less the same thing. There are longer cuts as well. I only saw the version that was 74 minutes. When this was originally released, I think it was 86, and they pared some stuff out. Again, some of that was code stuff. Some of that was just, it's a slow movie, (laughs) and they wanted to speed it up, sell more tickets, show it more times during the day. Yeah, I saw a 74-minute version without any music. Same here. Yeah, I think that's mostly what you're going to find these days. I didn't notice long periods of silence, though. There seemed to be quite a lot of talking. Well, they had to explain everything that we weren't seeing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let's get into that, because, yes, I believe what was expressed is you'll create the movie in your mind when they do it off screen. (laughs) And I will want to see how that lands with you guys. Give us a plot. We'll find out how frightening this Dracula really is. The undead vampire, Count Dracula, played by Bella Lugosi, has moved to London. He moved into an abandoned abbey arranged for him by his mad, bug-eating servant Renfield, played by Dwight Fry. Renfield's behavior soon has him sent to a sanitarium under the care of Dr. Seward. Dracula takes an interest in Seward and his family, Seward's daughter Mina, her fiancé John Harker, and Mina's friend Lucy. That night, Dracula visits Lucy in her bed and bites her, turning her into one of the undead. Dracula's true sights, though, are set on Mina. Dracula visits and bites Mina several times. Into our story comes Dr. Van Helsing. This open-minded doctor notices Dracula casts no reflection in a mirror 
and surmises Dracula is a vampire. Van Helsing starts to protect Mina with anti-vampire tools like Wolvesbane and crucifixes. Still, Dracula's powers of hypnosis is too much and Dracula takes Mina from her home. Renfield escapes the sanitarium, chased by Harker and Van Helsing. When Dracula realizes Renfield led the two men to him, he kills Renfield. As the sun rises, Dracula retreats to his coffin. He's found sleeping by Harker and Van Helsing, and the doctor drives a stake through the vampire's heart. Mina and Harker go off together, again a happy couple, as credits roll. And as we start, we do get music in either version. It's Swan Lake, if you hear the original, that da na 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 that becomes the Universal Monster theme. They'll use that throughout again and again. It becomes a signature of sorts. Yeah, again, the word iconic comes to mind. And what's funny is I've seen Swan Lake a couple of times and I didn't realize this was Swan Lake. I just thought of it as the Universal Monster theme. Oh, I definitely knew it was a piece of classical music. I didn't realize it was Swan Lake, though. I mean, Dracula needs a theme, right? If you're going to have a monster, every monster has to have a good theme song. So... I guess this works, even though he is co-opting it from Tchaikovsky. You know, this is the third time we've more or less talked about this storyline, but it is a shock. Like, forget all the character work, building up the relationship between Jonathan and whatever they wanted to call her in the other films. They had mix up the names and all that. But here, like, we're just on that stagecoach. Like, we're at that Roma village right away. And it's not even Jonathan Harker. It's Renfield going. Yeah, not only that. Yeah, that's a withhold. He is already there, like, meets everyone, goes to the castle, and Dracula's like, good night, Renfield. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, I've been writing Harker the whole time in my notes. Me too. (laughs) I had to go back and change all my notes to say Renfield. But it makes sense, right? It makes sense that, I mean, it's always kind of strange that Jonathan got away, right? It makes more sense that if Dracula has this henchman Renfield, and we're building up to the Renfield movie, that he's the first one that we see get turned here. It makes sense. I want to just go ahead and say right now, we could talk about Bela Lugosi all day. I get it. He's the guy that's doing the vampire. But my favorite performance in this movie is Dwight Fry. I love his giggles. I love his insanity. I think he is the standout of Dracula. (laughs) I love that laugh. I agree with you 100%. In fact, having seen now a couple versions of Nosferatu and this, I know Renfield is coming out in theaters. I think Renfield may be my favorite Dracula character, and this one just completely... I'm glad we start with Renfield. I never quite understood what made Renfield Dracula's servant. Here, this explains it so well. I agree. Narratively speaking, this makes more sense, like having Renfield being the one that goes to see Dracula and gets turned and helps bring all this evil back to, I guess in this case, England, not Germany now. This is different than the book. Maybe they adapted it this way for the play, but I like this entry more. It makes more sense, at least. Even though, yeah, there's none of the buildup of character or any of the visuals or any of that. This one choice of having Renfield replace Jonathan at the castle makes a lot of sense. But he feels really modern. He's like a total dandy, like getting out with the (laughs) cane and the hat and all of that. And it's like, can't be bothered. Of course, all the Hungarians are like, You know, it's demon night and all the vampires. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not worried about that kind of thing. Just mind the suit. And again, I like that, that he's not superstitious. He's from the city. You know, he's not like these yokels out in the middle of nowhere. Again, I think that works for the character. It does. 
However, it does undermine the character of Harker, who is supposed to be our hero, or I guess Van Helsing is our hero. Harker's barely in this. <laughs> I know. And so when it comes time that we have the heroes of this film, they are really non-characters because we go so much of this film, the best part of this film. I think every version of Dracula so far, and I bet this goes forward, my favorite parts all take place in Transylvania. And we don't have any of our heroes in it. Yeah, I think there's a problem, just to share my thoughts on the novel, I think there's a problem that happens in the novel. Not so much when they get back to England, but after they kill Lucy, there's some narrative problems about... Mina is just not that interesting. And the conquest of Mina and trying to save her, there's a good hundred pages there that could have been shored up a bit. It lingers a little bit too much. But I agree with you. Setup is everything in a horror movie. And I really, again, there's something classic and, I mean, let's just call it out what it is. This is an old movie, technically rudimentary, and you could probably complain that it's not scary, but I have a lot of fun with the setup of going to the Haunted Castle. I mean, I really like the idea of a man alone in a carriage riding up to a place that's filled with Obvious, like, fake bats on strings. <laughs> I do love when he looks out at the stagecoach to see who's driving, and it's a bat on a string. Yeah. <laughs> but the introduction of Dracula, they're not going to play any mystery unless you just don't know what a vampire is, which I think may be the case in 1931. If you haven't read the book, you might not know what you're getting into. But before Renfield reaches the castle, we see Dracula and his brides awaken out of their coffins. I love the shot of the possum. I don't know what a possum is doing down there. Was that an opossum? I thought it was an armadillo. It's an armadillo. Yeah. There's both. There's both weasels and armadillos. Yeah, because they carry leprosy, I think. So that's why they have an armadillo here. Like a bee gets out of a mini coffin and I don't know what that's about. <laughs> There's a bee-sized coffin that it crawls out of. They have every kind of animal. I agree. It's exactly what you expect and then a little bit extra. And I appreciate <laughs> The fact that this movie is going to make me smile. It is rarely going to make me... I think there's one upsetting image, but it's worth pointing out and thinking about Nosferatu. Max Schreck played Dracula to be something hideous to behold. And that was Lon Chaney's idea about Dracula. Literally, Universal went and bought up Nosferatu, which was a bootleg film, and Lon Chaney was studying it and saying, I'm going to basically do this makeup job. This is going to be... America's Dracula as well. Bella had a different approach. He said the way to get people into the theaters is to go for women. And so it's all about sex appeal. Women came to this like it was Chippendales. Like they <laughs> came for Bella to the stage repeatedly because of his power. When we see Bella emerge from this coffin, we don't have fangs. We don't really have claws. We don't really have any disfigurement of the body. The book talks about he has hair on his palms and just all this kind of like wolf kind of qualities to him. And that's not how Bella wanted to play it. He is a seducer in a cape who's got the stare, right? If there's one thing you remember about Bella. So many stares in this film. Those eye lights. His eyes are highlighted and he'll stare you down. He just commands you with them looks. Shots that they, they would just straight up like cut and splice into like his next film, White Zombie, because it's so iconic. 
It is. He is tremendous in this when he starts speaking and he's got that accent. Yeah, that is the accent that you think of with Dracula. I want to suck your blood. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not how it is in the book, but what, he's Hungarian and he just brought that accent. Bella is, yes. I should say it's Bela. I mean, I'm probably even mispronouncing his name. Bela Lugosi (laughs) is from Hungary, had only been in America for about a decade, and was playing bit parts, heavies. And again, finding the role of Dracula on the stage turned him into a star. And obviously the movies are going to make that even more so. But yes, he's just not the typical leading man of the time. And so it's his exoticism. It's the fact that He's from this far-off place. It's worth pointing out, Bram Stoker was Irish. He had never been to Transylvania. He kind of just picked a spot on a map that said, you're outside of my everyday. And so that's the appeal, right? This man that has, who speaks like no other, who looks like no other, and who has this unnerving confidence in his magnetism. He's with three women, damn it. (laughs) Right from the get-go. And the way they light him, they put just a key light over his eyes to enhance that magnetism. And the fact that he's wearing a cape, which probably wasn't so unusual in the 30s. People still were wearing capes to operas and things back then, but very fancy dress. But the slick back hair, the widow's peak, like everything you think about with Dracula is here. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's playing a dual role because he's also the carriage driver. He's the guy that picks up Renfield at the Bargo Pass and brings him back to the castle. Is that really a dual role? I think that was Dracula picking him up, and that's why it turns into a bat. I just thought it was the same guy. Orlok did the same thing in the silent Nosferatu. I thought that was a second dude. No, it's the same dude. It's just Dracula in disguise. Okay, I'll go with it. I think that was the case even in the book. Dracula never had servants is the problem. I mean, if Dracula's got to carry his own coffins to the ship, he's driving that (laughs) stagecoach too. You say he's got no servants, but he's got a harem like in the basement. And again, I think that that also speaks to his exoticism. He doesn't follow the typical Christian monogamy rules. But okay, so he's buying real estate. It's the same setup. This guy is a realtor. In the longer cut, the 86-minute cut, they had a lot more explanation about that oh there's a reason dracula wants to move in the longer cut because that was one question like i just never understood why he already wants to move at the beginning of this well i mean i think that you know he wants to spread right like the evil to move beyond the palace it looks lonely there he got three wives what are you talking about yeah but he's got no food Yeah, and he's, what, 500, 600 years old? You can imagine boredom has set in. Doesn't Van Helsing address this later in the film? So much is said later. (laughs) Yeah, he says Dracula has ruined Transylvania, and now he's come to do that to England. Right, which speaks more about English fears of immigrants, probably, than what Dracula's motives are. But there was more dialogue about how he had picked Renfield specifically, because Renfield was a self-starter. He didn't have anybody else. I think we still have one line where he asked, You didn't tell anyone that you came here, right? He wants to make sure that this guy has been lured into the spider web, the fly, he can suck his blood and not worry that others will be asking questions. And say what you will about the age of this film and its effects, but when there's that giant cobweb and Renfield is behind it, it definitely just is a visual version of the fly in the web. It's one of the few times where I feel like Todd Browning is doing his job. This movie is not very visually appealing. 
It's shot like a play. I feel like they put a camera on a tripod very far away from everyone and just told them to act. Yeah, sometimes they move the camera, but by and large, it's, yeah, like, obvious setup. Sometimes Dracula looks really short, like, just, (laughs) like, sloppy and lazy, and Bella's not a short man, but, like, they don't always photograph him for maximum effect. And I attributed that to the fact that Todd Browning was grieving the loss of his true leading man. He wanted Lon Chaney, and when he couldn't have that, he said, screw this movie, and let other people make the creative decisions. But yes, this is a cool castle. And I really always have enjoyed the idea that this man has come here for business, and then, yeah, what's going to happen? Because they had to shoot this thing so fast, or maybe because Todd Browning didn't give enough, there's just not a lot of insert shots. We don't get a lot of close-ups. We don't get reactions. We don't know information. Like, people suddenly just faint for reasons. Yes. <laughs> There's one insert shot that was obviously done in the editing room when one of the Hungarian ladies gives Renfield a crucifix, and they just freeze-framed and zoomed in, and it is so fuzzy and so grainy and all of that just to show you, hey, that's a crucifix. Yes. I call that coverage. You really need good coverage. You don't want to leave feeling like maybe you have an idea about how it's going to be edited together, but you don't want to be without choices. And it's like they did one take in a long shot, and then we're like, well, I hope people get this. All of a sudden, Renfield just falls over. He sees a bat outside the window. Three women are coming, (laughs) and then there's Bella coming back, and he's the one sucking his blood. This was a point of contention. Bella Lugosi was like, I ain't macking on no man. <laughs> but I think if you're introducing the idea of Dracula, you need to see him take a victim. To have these women do it and then not be in the rest of the movie would be confusing, even though I think in later movies, they will emphasize this harem of vampire women. I am sad that the vampire women, both here and later on in the film, are just left behind. I mean, the film is entitled Dracula, But you have to wonder about all these women vampires that are left behind to feed. And Dracula just... Lugosi here wins me over. I don't drink vine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, funny. This is called camp now. If it ever played straight, and maybe it never did. Maybe in the 30s you had to have the humor element to it. Because I don't think Nosferatu... Well, we did laugh about that. What a lovely neck. I guess... There's always something, when you know someone's a vampire, everything they say has double entendre. There's something kind of silly and funny about the performance, even more so than Nosferatu, which I think could tap into the horror because Max Schreck looks so horrific. And here Bella just looks like a player from another era, right? Like, oh, this used to pick up the chicks, but now it just looks hopelessly corny. But it's not long before he does bite Renfield and they're going to be on the ship to travel to England. Yeah, I wrote down, we get to London and there's 52 minutes left of this film. This may be the longest time we spend after the ship arrives of the three that we've talked about so far. But yeah, wow. What are we going to spend an hour on in London now that Dracula is there? The ship stuff they just didn't have. The footage we do have, I think you see a couple shots of what looks like a really cool moment, all these sailors running around in a storm, water splashing up on deck from another movie, five years old, from silent (laughs) film 
They just grab stock footage. And the way it plays, you just think that storm killed everyone. Yes. It doesn't even feel like Dracula did all this. We have Renfield. Thank God we have Renfield giggling in the basement saying, Master, we're almost here and all of that. But yes, it does not feel like Dracula like sat up in his coffin and one by one took those sailors. It doesn't have that slasher movie quality that you'd want, frankly. We have, all of a sudden, we don't even see the people finding the ship. We just see silhouettes of the captain dead at the steering wheel and voices of people that are exploring the ship. They find Renfield and have him committed. They know from that giggle that this is someone that needs to be in the nearest (laughs) sanitarium. And it's run by Dr. Seward, who also lives at the sanitarium. I guess the sanitarium is his house. It's kind of strange to me in that way. Somebody who really takes his work home with him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And raising a daughter without a mother, without a wife. Again, feels like a setup for a sitcom, frankly. (laughs) Call it Madhouse. Yeah. Why you'd let your daughter running around with the clients, I just can't imagine. I do have to say, and I don't know why, but I was not expecting this. And this is not part of the iconic Dracula imagery, but I love the fact that when Bella Lugosi goes out on the town in London, he's got a top hat. Like, Dracula wearing a top hat. I don't know. That just amused me for some reason in this. And that was the fashion in the 30s. I mean, a lot of people were wearing them. It's not just Dracula. He goes to the opera and all the men are in top hats. Yeah, but it's the fact that it's Dracula in a top hat. I don't know. I got to almost Jack the Ripper vibe as he's going after like his first victim there. You know, they show her selling flowers, but you could see it almost being a prostitute like Jack the Ripper went after. Very much so. Yes, I definitely think that that is the purpose of this. This is where we realize it, though, right? It's London. It's foggy. Yeah, the flower girl is calling out, looking, just basically crying out, hey, I'm your first victim. Come get me. How is it going to look? The fact that he backs her into an alley and then we just hear police whistles tells us what this movie's idea about horror is. Everything will happen off screen or taken from such a far away vantage point that we will never see anything. Bella Lugosi is not wearing fangs. Yeah, which I didn't even realize until you said that. Like, yeah, we never did see those fangs. But I thought for this, again, if you want to build up the mystery of who Dracula is, if you don't know about vampires, you might wonder, did he stab her or something? So, like, at this point, it's not annoying me that I have to create the film in my head. I just thought this was an artistic choice to build up the suspense. Good point. If you didn't know he was a vampire, although we've already had Hungarian villagers tell us, vampire, 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 you may know that he is a scary dude that was leaning in on a (laughs) passed out man in his castle, but you wouldn't know how he would take this woman. And this feels like really his first kill. He turned Renfield into his mad servant, but this woman is just going to be dead. And the next victim is shortly thereafter. He goes into one of the symphony boxes and puts his uh, eyes on Lucy. Yeah, he hypnotizes like a female usher to go tell Dr. Seward he has a phone call in the lobby. Seward spends a lot of time introducing himself to Dracula for somebody with a phone call waiting. (laughs) Yeah, we're neighbors. That's where they're like, oh, hey, you live in the rundown abbey. I hope you fix that place up because it's a real (laughs) shithole. I just love the conversation. 
Yeah, I do love it. I shall do very little repairing. <laughs> yeah. I love that line. Like, that is not the neighbors you want. You bought the rundown house. You're not going to fix it up? No, no. That's my aesthetic. You haven't seen my Transylvania crib, but it's also just filled with broken battlements. And this is how I roll. Armadillos running around. Yeah. Believe me, I still get laid. I got three wives in the rundown basement with the armadillos. And what you mentioned about Bella Lugosi's height. Dr. Seward towers over this man, so it really (laughs) makes him look short and kind of impotent in that scene. But part of that is the fact that the doctor's standing on a higher stair. That's a thing you could have fixed in blocking. That's something that a director should be aware of and be able to adjust. God knows, interview with a vampire, Brad Pitt is a whole lot taller than Tom Cruise, but they will always be at each other's eye level. You will never see that disparity because... That's what you do. You fix those things through the magic of cinema. Yeah, and this is something they should know by now. We talked about with the silent film Nosferatu, like how they understood so much of the cinematic language even at that time. It's a wonder to watch. Here, it feels like we're back in amateur land. And it's disappointing because, again, this is a director that has 10 years of good silent movies. And as you say, Freaks is considered a masterpiece of the horror genre. He would make it the next year at another studio. But again, when I put into perspective that the movie he wanted to make, he didn't get to make, I can see why you'd check out and just let your cameraman make all the creative choices. Or uncreative choices, in this case. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yes. Although I still always smile at the bat. So Lucy goes home, she and Mina are giggling about this man they had in the exchange about, like, reciting poetry, I guess. They were talking about death, because... That's what you do at the intermission of a symphony is recite poems about death and Dracula can talk about how glorious it must be. The bat comes flying in through her window and she's dead. This is the crazy thing. Lucy is the best stuff in the novel. By my estimation, the scary stuff is when they actually have to go and realize she's eating children and stake her and the man that were all romancing her suddenly have to like kill her and see her naked with fangs and all that like that's intense stuff and here there's just not enough of it right lucy barely registers i can't believe we have dracula lean in over her bed and the next thing we see is her in a surgical amphitheater being pronounced dead and they're like there's two marks on her neck I'm fine with her dying this way again. I'm with Jacob. I thought they were just teasing and saving the real bites and things for the end, but that we never really see her again. And But we do. We see a newspaper article. Here's what we see. About 20 minutes later, Lucy emerges from the graveyard. She's walking around the woman in white, and we hear the sound of an unseen child crying. And then, yes, we have bit players reading newspaper articles about how a woman in white is trying to tempt children and eating them, they never kill her. They never address this. They never stop the children (laughs) being attacked. This is, I think, again, the most graphic stuff in the novel is, I guess, the stuff you cannot show in 1931 on camera. Yeah, because I know in that novel, like with the three brides in Transylvania, Dracula fends them off. He's like, here's a bag with a child in it while I suck on Jonathan Harker. Like, that's my meal. You have this child. I don't expect them to do that in this, but you got to do something. Like, it can't be all off-screen inference. You rewrite the script then to get around the code. By doing it this way, you've taken horror off the table. It's suddenly now a comedy. 
It feels like it's competing with Mel Brooks <laughs> and not competing for Nosferatu. It's better than Dracula Dead and Loving It, I'll just say that much. Ooh, that's awful. <laughs> I've never seen it, and I may keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. So what's the rest of this movie? If all of this is just inference to build us up to where we're going, the rest of this will all be about Dracula deciding he wants Mina. Really? I think the rest of this movie is about a cockney sanitarium worker. Maybe. We'll talk about Martin in a bit. He does get the funniest line. <laughs> Yeah, he's charming in his own way, but Dracula is just kind of hanging out, wanting to see Mina. And one thing that gets added much later, in a 70s movie made by the guy that did Dark Shadows, they finally came up with the idea that Mina looks like Dracula's long-lost love from way back when. But that is not here. It's not in the book, and it's not in this version. The idea that Mina is somehow something from my mortal past that I lost and need to have a second chance with gives Dracula sort of a romantic we can root for him. Suddenly we understand why he's hung up on Mina. Without it, I'm just thinking he needs to get out more. This is an introvert vampire. He's got all of London. Why is he hanging out at this house with all these dudes? This sanitarium house at that. Well, it's his neighbor. I mean, start with your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) My frustration, this is where it sets in that they're not showing us anything because you get this whole monologue from Mina that there was this mist and fog and this white face came out. I'm like, wow, this sounds amazing. Show it to me. (laughs) In the 1920s in Nosferatu, they were able to do all kinds of cool stuff with Shadow in that. And here you can't do anything? I don't care. Like, I get it now. The director's checked out. There's no money for this. Then fine. It's not going to excuse some of the stuff they try to pull here. I think you would get more in the stage production. You get to see things get staked. They talked about the way that they had to fall through a coffin that, you know, Bela talked about how he was vanquished and vaporized and all of that. They could have done some of the theatrical things that were happening on Broadway But I think some of it's got to be the fear that the censors won't let them. There's this longer cut that has been excised. I didn't hear about any special effects shots that got cut. But I think that they just, let me put it this way. At the end, it was a real question mark about whether we should even hear Dracula screaming. Because that might be too violent. To hear it as the stake goes in, that might not pass code. Wow. Come on, right? This is the death scene of your major villain? Yes, we need to have it acknowledged. Yeah. Don't put that off screen in the background with no acknowledgement of that. That's where we're at with this Dracula. And honestly, this London stuff is not all that interesting to me, but this is where we get our introduction of our hero of the film, Van Helsing. Yeah, not Jonathan Harker again, Van Helsing. He's going to start espousing all this vampire knowledge that he brought with him from Germany, I guess, because he's seen Nosferatu. He's German. Well, like, they analyze Renfield's blood. He's like, oh, yeah, we got a vampire. Like, it, mm. I don't understand how <laughs> they come to these conclusions, but they come to some conclusions here. And they name drop Nosferatu in this. They're like, he's a vampire. He's a Nosferatu. I noticed that. I thought that was a German thing. Well, here's the thing. I'll remind you that they bought all the prints. To Nosferatu. They actually kind of saved that movie. (laughs) As the Stoker estate was trying to burn it, they were like, this film is really good. And if it had been made with Lon Chaney, it would have probably been a duplicate. Yeah, but didn't you say Nosferatu meant plague? The literal translation, yes. So I just found it interesting that 
that movie had such a long shadow, pun intended, that it's now being referenced in Dracula. Yeah, the official adaptation of the book. Yeah, I guess the way I would put it is, Universal hoped that you would never know there was a German version. They were going to co-opt all that was cool. Yeah, an actual good version of this story. <laughs> yeah, they were going to remake that Gus Van Zandt psycho style, and they were denied when the Man of a Thousand Faces died. Van Helsing is interesting because he's the man of science. He's the man, he's the professor. He's the only one that's not partnered with a woman, and so I think that that sort of makes him an equal foe for Dracula. You can't get my woman away from me because I have no woman for you to take. And so, yes, he seems to know right away who Count Dracula is, and they have some amusing banter. It's also worth pointing out this actor was also on stage with Bela Lugosi. They both were in the stage production, so they had been doing this a while. They have a familiarity together that works. I think they have some screen chemistry more than Mina and Dracula, frankly. But the frustration, like you called out, Stuart, is coverage. We'll see Van Helsing show something to Dracula, and he'll throw it down, and then we got to wait a while to find out, oh, he gave him a mirror, and he freaked out about, because they don't have a reflection, so he knocked that mirror away from Van Helsing. But I'm like, what did he show him? Like, what is going on? There were all those insert shots where you didn't see Dracula's reflection. I mean, that was quite obvious, the mirror bit. Well, no, he hands him a little, like, chest, and he opens it up and throws it down and hisses, and I'm like, what was that about? But he just opened that chest before then, and we saw the mirror shots where he turns and can see Mina and Seward and Dracula with his eyes, but he looks at the mirror, and we actually have those insert shots. This is the one scene where they do have the coverage. Well, let me come down the middle. Yes, we have this moment where Dracula is talking to Mina, and Van Helsing opens this, it's a scar box with a mirrored inside. It looks like a little coffin. I kind of like that detail, actually. And he's the one to first notice that I can see Mina in this reflection, but I can't see Dracula. But later, he's going to be like, come look into this mirror, and we don't have the insert shots. We know that it is a mirror from those earlier scenes, but we really wanted, again, these are directing one-on-one choices. And the fact that Dracula runs away and we hear, again, everyone looking out the window. Wow, he's turned into a wolf. Like, (laughs) a decade earlier, with probably less money, they were able to at least film a hyena and tell us it was a wolf. (laughs) Seriously. You could get as much here as a radio play, honestly. What we are seeing, and that's worth pointing out, this is the first sound horror movie. So what people were coming from, what people were coming for, is to hear... I am Dracula. (laughs) That's the appeal. It's the voice. It's not the fangs. It's not turning and transforming into a bat or a wolf. It's not visual. This is not a visual movie. It's a talkie, an extreme talkie, made by someone who came from the silent era and didn't know talkie techniques and was really struggling with the fact that they had to mic up things and he couldn't make it the visual way that he normally could. Yeah, see Babylon actually don't, but Babylon (laughs) covered that pretty extensively. But if he comes from the silent era, you'd think he'd be all about the visuals. Yeah, go see Freaks. Great visuals here. Like you said, maybe he's just checked out and he doesn't care. He can't. I mean, some of it, again, is the fact that like camera placement and all, we have to, you're not as free. The microphone, the boom mics, all of that stuff It's limiting. You have to disguise all of that. You can't move around. You can't have your actors moving around in the same way. And so a lot of early talkies are very constrained. I mean, Jazz Singer is only 
partially talky because if they wanted to make the movie, they had to go back to the silent part. People just didn't know how to integrate the sound technology with fluid movement yet. And you can feel it in these early ones. But I will say this. Yes, Dracula is not making the impression that he needs to. But Renfield, man, there's this (laughs) moment where the maid announces that Mina's on the lawn and everybody leaves and she faints. And then Renfield, like, you know, he's been eating flies. He's been eating spiders. The way that he crawls at her neck, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to eat that maid. It is <laughs> the creepiest moment in the entire movie. Agreed. Yep. Thirded. Every time Renfield's on screen, which is a lot of the second two thirds of the film, is the better stuff. Anytime we're dealing with Mina and Harker and Van Helsing. I start to check out a little bit because it's just uninteresting. It's a lot of talk and not a lot of substance. We, you know, Van Helsing has the rules. We don't know why he knows what he knows. He doesn't really talk about killing previous vampires. How much of the rules? We we know about reflection. I didn't hear anything about garlic. It's all wolfsbane here. Wolfsbane, yeah. Whatever that is. Is that even a thing? Like, I don't know what wolfsbane is. (laughs) I mean, I don't put it around my house. (laughs) It's stinky, yeah. But I don't have a vampire problem. I don't live in Transylvania. And we got the crucifix. Yeah. There's, again, he knows about the neck biting. How many times does Mina get bit? Three times? I think it's three or she's about to be bit the third time. She's bit twice. There's once in the bedroom and once like in the garden. Yeah. And then she seems to be fine. All of a sudden she's like dressed for a night out and on the terrace. And she wants to attack Jonathan Harker all of a sudden. Like, is she a vampire? I Those rules are all very nebulous. In my classic understanding of the vampire, three bites and you're one of them, right? I thought it was just one bite of a vampire. Yeah, it's usually, if they don't drain you, then you'll turn to a vampire eventually. Again, even in the book, these rules weren't always hard and fast, but I'm trying to understand what the threat is. Mina is saying, my soul is corrupted. She's trying to break off her relationship. She's not a Christian anymore. She shouldn't be married, and she could actually taint or corrupt her husband, maybe literally. So they have until sunrise to find the vampire's lair yeah it's a little confusing to me there i think they just need to stop him from biting her again Mm -hmm. he lives in carfax abbey which again i'm carfax i'm like maybe that's a place but i'm just thinking of other things imagine him living out of the trunk of a low end sedan or something it's just (laughs) and van helsing has figured out this is vampires very early on he knows about them again he's a man of science who accepts superstition or at least knows the science behind superstition so that makes him interesting and again the fact that he is a bachelor it'd be one thing if mina was his daughter right he'd be a little bit more emotionally involved but it seems much more about using his wiles and his smarts to defeat this man who does try to hypnotize him. At one point, Dracula does try to reach out the fingers. He's got a two-finger point, and then he gets you with the mice, <laughs> and then you start doing whatever. It worked for Renfield. It's not going to work for Van Helsing. That's a well-acted scene by Van Helsing. If you're trying to streamline this, I'd probably mix Seward and Van Helsing into one character. Because Seward ends up not doing a whole lot. Correct. I agree. I feel like they could have made that choice. We don't know why Van Helsing is there. He's just all of a sudden there and he has all the answers. 
and he doesn't really have a whole lot of fear or a lot at stake, no pun intended. And I guess Renfield gets killed by Dracula because he led Van Helsing and Harker, but we already knew, like, he announced where he lived. I mean, I guess that's it. Yes, Renfield should have been the only one to know where this vampire bought. But he then... He told everyone at the opera. I'm your neighbor, right? Like, I heard that. (laughs) So, like, maybe don't drop that, right? Just say you're from out of town, you're visiting, you're at the Holiday Inn. It seems like a mistake (laughs) to say, I'm in the rotten abbey that you all think is needing repairs. And what's so bizarre is, like, Dracula knows Van Helsing and Harker are there, and he's like, well, I gotta go to bed, it's daytime. It doesn't matter that my enemies are here. (laughs) And here's the thing. So, in the book, obviously... He had lots and lots of coffins with his home soil. The whole thing was that he had to sleep on home Transylvanian soil, and that's really the evil, right? It's like that whole area, the foreignness of it. And so he had spread all of those coffins all around, and they had to go around and find all the hiding spaces. There's a large part of the novel devoted to just finding those hiding spaces. Because this is a low-budget film, and they just can't do a lot of locations, there's one place... And the coffin is not even disguised. It's in the basement. And yeah, it's not Renfield's fault. I'm here to exonerate him. No, he shouldn't have been killed. (laughs) Even though he gets picked up and thrown down the stairs. I think that's just Dracula getting his rage out. That man didn't deserve it. Yeah, those stairs are something with no railing and everything, too. It's like you found something a lot like your Transylvania home. A very unsafe staircase. That's why he's not repairing it. He doesn't want no banister. (laughs) But the fact that Dracula is staked off screen, that pissed me off. Oh my god, when they say, you should have seen the look on his face, I wrote down, (laughs) I wish I did. You could have shown it to us. Yeah, nothing to fear, Dracula is dead forever. Really? That's not the way to build suspense. Obviously, yes, that is not the way to do it. You want to... I mean, even the silent movies knew that. You had the girl on the train tracks and the train's coming, right? You do the thing like he's about to bite her again and will they get there in time? They're doing everything to tell us, don't worry, don't panic. Yeah, like Nina is not a vampire now because, I don't know, the daylight stopped it or something. I don't even understand what was going on with her. In later movies I've seen, like Fright Night, if you kill the vampire that sired you, you're no longer a vampire. I think they did that in Lost Boys also. Yeah. But that's the best I can take of it here. No, they have some whole speech, like, if you're a vampire and, like, you die in the daylight, your soul is safe. They spout out a bunch of stuff, and I don't understand it. Yeah, there's something about night and day, specifically. Yeah. And because it is day or sunrise, and they stake the vampire... The coffin intended for her, because I think she was going to be the first of many new London wives. She isn't in that coffin, and she won't have to get in there again. But what's weird is she and Jonathan go off together and walk up those stairs. Now, we've seen Jonathan walked in. The stairs take you to, like, a second story or something. They were at ground level. They could just exit the building But they're going up the stairs to some room of Dracula's or something? I'm not quite sure where they're going. Where's the continuity director for this film? Yeah, I took it the other way. I took it that they came in on ground level and the stairs were to the basement. I mean, because everything down there feels like a basement. Yeah, they ran in off the right side there, so I was just... And that's where Renfield came in, so I thought that was ground level. Maybe they were going upstairs from the basement... Yeah, but, you know, the metaphor is obvious. Like, they are going to be able to get married, go up, 
heading to the godly path up to heaven, and she won't have to be a ruined woman here in this cesspool. Her soul is redeemed. Who knows about her friend Lucy, though? I'm still wondering if that's not the sequel. (laughs) But it's called Dracula's Daughter, so I'm thinking not. Yeah, I want to know who Dracula knocked up. Mm Mm-hmm. Who didn't he knock up? (laughs) He had those brides. Are they going to retcon it? Those brides never got resolved. One of those going to be the daughters? Mm Mm-hmm. This is going to be like a Jerry Springer, (laughs) like baby test. You are the father. (laughs) No, no, not me. That's for next time. For this time, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Dracula 1931 English language? (laughs) Jacob. Look, I don't have a problem with old movies. I highly recommend Nosferatu, highly recommended Metropolis. Old films, black and white, silent, whatever. That's not a barrier for me. So I went into this film actually optimistic. I saw that it was Todd Browning. I knew Bella Lugosi was such an iconic actor and brought so much to what we think of when we think of Dracula. So I went in excited for this one, and I couldn't believe how long 74 minutes or however short this film is could actually feel. There's a lot of fun stuff when we first meet Dracula at the beginning, just taking Lugosi in and how he looks, the sound, like all that's great. But this film really wears me out with not showing me anything by the amount of static I have to listen to when no one's talking (laughs) and there's no score. Okay, you had a director that didn't care and you didn't have any money and you're really worried about what you could get away with the censors. I don't know. It feels like a lot of Children of the Corn and Hellraiser films we also reviewed. And I'm not giving those a pass just because they had uninterested directors and no money to do what they wanted. That usually results in a bad film and you don't get a pass for that. And I'm sorry. Like, I know this is iconic. I know our listeners, please do Universal Monsters. But if this is what they're like, the only other one I've seen is Frankenstein. And I was a kid when I saw that. And so it was probably boring to me because of that. Maybe it holds up now. I don't know. But look... Yes, you get to see Bela Lugosi as Dracula in a top hat, and that was fun. He looks great, he sounds great, but the rest of this film, it's not satisfying on a horror level, it's not satisfying on a just a narrative level. I was confused a lot of the time, because even though it's so short, I had a ton of notes, because there's just so much, like, just here's exposition after exposition explaining everything that we will not show you in this film, and it's so frustrating. I was actually kind of shocked by how bad this film was, but (laughs) I'm sorry, this is the definition of homework. Yes, if you're a cinephile and you want to track like the evolution of all the great cinematic villains and all that, sure, watch this, but I'm going to say you could skip it. It's uh, not recommend for Dracula 1931, the Lugosi edition. Stuart. The song you just sang, Jacob, is the one that I'm going to sing in a different register, which is to say that I hear that you are singing it in an angry voice. How dare they make this bad movie? I think there's still some fun here. I would say as a scary movie, it fails, obviously. And it didn't have to. Nosferatu has scary imagery. There is stuff in that movie from 10 years before. Just because it's an old film doesn't mean that it can't still play. This is badly made. You're correct in citing that. But Bela Lugosi is the Mac Daddy, right? And there is something (laughs) fun In the same way, it's fun to watch, like, you know, home movies of your parents when they were young and thought they were hot. Like, there's just (laughs) something kind of amusing about seeing his moves. Because they're important, right? Because what Bela Lugosi is doing is still setting the tone for how every vampire will behave after him. And I think 
that's one reason to watch this movie. Homework. That's homework to me. Uh, but I also thought it was easy to watch. What I hear you saying is that it was a slog, and this movie is barely over an hour, and I think it helps that I read the book. I n- always knew what was going on. It was interesting what they couldn't show. I agree with you. It was head-scratching sometimes about the way that they would pull back or obscure the things that the novel would linger on. But I think that it's vanilla ice cream. You may find it boring. It may not have a lot of flavor. But it is the base by which all future vampires are going to be judged. And for that alone, I say see it. You will probably have a pretty good time because it's funny. That's my argument. The book is a classic. This is just a camp classic. And I'm right down the middle between you two on this (laughs) reveal. The first time I watched this very many years ago, I had a reaction a lot like Jacob's. I don't think I was angry per se. Frustrated, I think, is a better word. Just frustrated throughout the film. Frustrated is angry. Uh, To me, that's different. Yeah, I think there's fine lines there of difference. But I was rather unimpressed with this the first time I watched it. And coming this time, I didn't really remember my first time watching it. I mean, I was doing it not for a now-playing review. I wasn't taking notes. I was just watching it for background. And so watching it this time, I did find myself uninterested a lot during some of the England stuff. Again, Van Helsing's endless speeching and things. And I think part of it is, I know this stuff. I've also read the book, but I also know Dracula lore, and I've seen other versions of Dracula. And so, well, what he's saying might be revelatory for audiences of the time, given that this is the progenitor of a lot of the lore. For me, it's like, okay, it's more interesting what are they including, what aren't they including, than what he's actually saying. So, what it comes down to for me is the performance of Lugosi and of Renfield. Those two are really chewing up the screen in a way that I love. I'm having so much fun watching those two. And Renfield is on the screen a lot with that Cockney sanitarium worker. Martin. Yeah, he's like a step away from Chim Chimini Chim Chim True with his accent there. They're all crazy except us. And sometimes I have doubts about you. That best line of the film. By Martin. The helper is always making those comments in British movies, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is a genuinely funny line, and one I've heard repeated other times, so it survived outside this film, I guess, if this was the originator of that joke. So I'm able to come down on a weak recommend because of Lugosi's Dracula, primarily. I think he does a really good job when he's on screen, and yeah, there's a couple cringe moments when he's going in to bite Mina. And he's making some kind of weird face because he doesn't have fangs. It's kind of strange, but it's not just homework for me. I had some enjoyment watching it, and I think you will too. Yeah, I think it's fun. I just don't think it's very scary. And I think if it had been made better, it would be. But we were only discussing one of two Dracula movies from 1931. It's worth pointing out. And we were even considering doing it as a separate podcast. Until we all watched it. (laughs) Yes. Universal, confronted with the idea that sound movies meant that they don't necessarily play in foreign countries, decided the way to appeal to a Spanish-speaking audience is to, well, by day, Todd Browning would shoot his film, and then by night, 
another director, another DP, and a Spanish-speaking cast all would step in and shoot the same thing. And I mean the same thing, the same script, the same sets, the same marks on the set. You're supposed to block (laughs) it the same way. And yet it didn't end up being exactly the same movie. I don't know. Should we have made it its own podcast? I still debate. I feel like it would have been like, oh, he doesn't attack the flower girl in this one. And, oh, the brides just feed on Renfield. Like, there are a few little differences like that. I'd say the biggest thing, and you're saying they staged it and blocked it the same. There are, like, pan-ins. Like, the camera's actually moving in this one a little bit. Still no score. But the biggest difference, I think, is Renfield. Like, he gets more scenes. They're trying to, like, psychoanalyze him or something at one point. It's a very long talky scene. It's still not great, but there's more there. Yeah, it's slightly longer, and I agree with you. It's better directed, is my feeling on it. Yes, George Melford was just as acclaimed as Todd Browning. And I guess he cared, unlike Browning, because I got an insert shot of that mirrored box that I was complaining about in Dracula. (laughs) We see Dracula not seeing his reflection and reacting. I get it more. There does seem to be more care put into the shooting of the film. More seems to be the optimum word, but it's worth pointing out, Melford didn't speak Spanish. He was a white guy. He was <laughs> thrown in there being like, you figure this out with interpreters. But yes, they seem to have more passion for it. And what I would say is that there's just more love for what was on the page, so more of the story comes through. Whereas I felt like Todd Browning was checked out, one take and I'm done, I'll be in my trailer. This guy really did have a lot of coverage I understood moments better, like Lucy, or Lucia, as she is in the Spanish version, we actually see they confirmed that they went to her grave and killed her. And I know, Stuart, you made a lot of claims about camp with this Dracula film with Bella Lugosi. I feel like if you want camp, this is the one to watch because the faces this Dracula makes, I feel like it's Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman, like just doing weird faces <laughs> at times. He has a stare off with Van Helsing that feels like we're about to get a Lucador wrestling match going on. Like yes. these faces they make. So here's the problem with more. On one hand, you could say there's more story, there's more care, there's more passion. You could also say there's too much acting. And the real problem, the reason why I can't side with the critics, who pretty uniformly said Spanish better than English version. Agreed with the critics there, for me. (laughs) Um, And yet you have to confront the fact that the vamping of Carlos Villagras is not good. No, I agree. Like, if what you care about is Bela Lugosi, and he is great in Dracula. Yeah. But if you care about the story and just the flow and everything then the Spanish one is better. Like, yeah, it's no Bela Lugosi, but everything else is better. I think overall the acting is worse. Yes. It starts in the very beginning. I was laughing out loud as this woman in the stagecoach keeps badly fake falling onto Renfield. Yeah, no, I felt like people cared more here. Like, people were trying, unlike with Browning's version. And maybe it's because I don't speak Spanish fluently, but for some reason I noticed the lack of music more. Here, it was really hurting that there were these long stretches of silence, and overall, I recommended Dracula. I can't recommend the Spanish version. What was weird, and I didn't go back to compare it to the Lugosi one, but when you get that first scene of Dracula coming out of his grave, yes, there's no score, but it doesn't feel like there was any soundtrack here. It's just, there's no ambient noise, there's Mm -hmm. no footsteps, no creaking of coffins opening. Maybe that wasn't the Lugosi one, and I don't remember. But it feel like just static. Yeah, 
it's a real problem not having a score or any sound effects. Again, the original English version is also utilizing silence or lacking a soundtrack, however you want to <laughs> frame that. I feel like, again, they didn't have a composer in either one, so they dealt with what they had to. But the problem with Moore is sometimes it's too much acting, and I agree with you. Not only is Dracula not good, the Renfield is blowing out my eardrums. <laughs> he is screaming so much, I'm like, please, dude. There's something about the way the other guy would just do the giggle. That's all you need. You don't need to have this over the top. And they ruined that maid scene. You know, when he looked like he was going to go bite the maid, they let the scene go on longer, and he just picks a fly off her and eats it. I don't know. I It took me back to my high school days when I had to watch telenovelas for my Spanish class to practice Spanish. I don't know. That's just the style of acting. It just seemed to lean into that. It's not good, but it's entertaining. <laughs> they were in competition. The woman that played Eva, it's not Mina in this one, but she said that they very much knew that the other people were going to get distributed in America and the Latin cast wanted to beat them. They wanted to have the better film. They walked away feeling they did. Their movie opened in Cuba a month after Dracula, but I think it remains a footnote. Even if there's this critical consensus that Spanish is better, I don't think you watch that version. I bought the 4K Blu-ray set of the Universal Monsters, and the Spanish version was literally a bonus feature on the Dracula disc. And to me, it should remain a bonus feature, not a feature feature. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Because Bella Lugosi's not in it, right? Yes. And that matters a lot. You're downplaying that. But like the Dracula is not here, and you have a guy being a goofy and not being menacing at all. Like, he doesn't have the stare, he doesn't have the presence, he looks silly. I'm laughing every time. Bella Lugosi was campy, I was laughing at that too, but he commanded the screen in a way that this Spanish-speaking actor just... He didn't work again in the role, you know? Like, they didn't say, we got something here and made more with him. They knew he was bad. And I'll just reiterate, yes, Lugosi is the better Dracula, Spanish Dracula is the better Dracula film of the two. Can't agree with that because Lugosi and Renfield in that original is what pushed it over to a recommend for me. You take those away, you get a not recommend out of me. Yeah, I want to say I don't recommend either one. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. You're screaming about <laughs> the Spanish one. Okay. I thought you were recommending Spanish. No, I wasn't recommending Spanish Dracula. I'm just saying... I found it slightly more entertaining. <laughs> okay. It is the same movie by and large. So if you had problems with the English-speaking movie, they probably remain in the Spanish one, which is why I feel like I recommend the Spanish one only as a curiosity and as a supplement, as Arnie said, to the Bella Lugosi. You have to watch Bella Lugosi, and then maybe you want to watch this one too. I suggest that you do, but not essential. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you how similar they are just for the listener who may not have seen it, even the joke where you've got the sanitarium caregiver and the nurse talking and he goes, they're all crazy, but you and me, and sometimes I wonder about you. That exact same joke is there in Spanish. That was when I'm like, how can we make this its own review? We reviewed this movie. <laughs> What's funny is my wife, she learned Spanish because she teaches dual language in elementary schools. And so she always likes to like listen just to practice. And I was saying lines, she's like, when did you learn Spanish? How do you know all this? I'm like, it's the exact same script. Like, I already watched this film. <laughs> yeah, again, that should be emphasized. They were trying to make the exact same movie. 
and what you see are slight variations, but important ones. I do agree with what I think we're all saying here, and that the better movie is Spanish, the better Dracula is Lugosi. I disagree with the better movie. I mean, it's better directed. That's what I'm saying. It's a better made movie. Both are unassailable, but yes, do I have a better time watching the Spanish one? No. I'd say both are assailable, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that is it for this week's Dracula. Our next one, we're going to be looking at Universal Movies' continuation, Dracula's Daughter. Meanwhile, this Friday, if you want something completely different, we are reviewing a George Lucas dystopian film. The Phantom Menace! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean a future that's bad, not a movie that's bad. <laughs> it's THX 1138, George Lucas's first film from 1971, a movie that flopped so hard it almost took Francis Ford Coppola with it. Mm, indeed. It is an interesting production history. And yeah, an interesting way to think of a director that I, you know, to me was the embodiment of positivity and commercial filmmaking, but in fact shows in this film that he has a dystopian artsy side as well. We'll have fun parsing that out this Friday. Yes, it is available to gold-level donors. That's a donation to us via PayPal of $30 or more. Or if you're a patron on our Patreon or our Podbean site, it's just $25 per more because that's a monthly fee. And with that, you get all of the Adams Family reviews, you get all of the dystopia reviews, and you get all of the patron-exclusive reviews, of which there's over 70. So you get just a treasure trove of now-playing reviews that you can't get anywhere except through our patron feeds. And I want to give a shout-out to some of our patrons. These are through Podbean, so not always their real name, just all we have is the username that they gave us, but Nate, Zabu Kazar, Maddie B, Bryce, Mohabid Jerk. I'm sure they're all so <laughs> proud of the shout out here. Smidge, A.T. White, Dorothy Kari, J. Pearson 16, Seduskyas. And we got, oh boy, Fijirja 12, JRB Horticulture, Reagan. Al Armour Jr., maybe? Joby Wan and Andrew D. Zirko 67. Thank you all so much. We apologize for mangling your <laughs> usernames. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure they love it. <laughs> but thank you so much for your support of our show. We really, really appreciate it. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time. May the evil spirit be cast out until the end of time. Be thou exorcised, O Dracula, and thy body long undead. Find destruction throughout eternity in the name of thy dark, unholy master. In the name of the All-Holiest, and through this cross, be the evil spirit cast out until the end of time. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast, Movie Review. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. What even if it would work? Do you expect me to agree to anything so fantastic? Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. I hope you will like it. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. You do not know why you came here tonight. It was because I wished you here. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. I want to be what you are, see what you see, love what you love. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. You're always leaving on me in my film. <laughs> Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Isn't eternity together better than a few years of ordinary life? You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. A good prince would have paid that price for peace. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I am the king of my kind. Now playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. I condemn you to living death, to eternal hunger for living blood. Now playing credits read by Brock. Words, words, words. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. How can you expect me even to listen to you when you're concealing the truth about yourself? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Master, we are here. You can't hear what I'm saying, but we are here. We are safe. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Your impotent men with their foolish spells cannot protect you from my power. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Good night, Mr. Renfield.
<laughs> and now we can safely say that this is the version based on Todd Browning's 1897 novel. No, no, not Todd Browning's 1897 novel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. I'll say it again. This is the one based on Bram Stoker's 1897 novel. 